So we are in uh, week three of a sermon series called Things I Wish Jesus Had Never Said. Things I Wish Jesus Had Never Said. Now that obviously is being cute, right? You know, we're being cute on purpose to try to attract your attention. And we could have called it hard sayings of Jesus. But in reality, if you read scripture, right, you go through it, and the places you really need to pay attention are exactly where Jesus says something that makes you uncomfortable, right? I mean, that's exactly when you need to pay attention. It's exactly when you read those things you wish Jesus hadn't said that you need to go, okay, I need to pay attention here. And so uh, over the last couple of weeks, here are some of the verses that we've covered. One, we covered Luke chapter 6. And in Luke chapter 6, Jesus is speaking and he says this. He says, but to you who are listening, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also, right? That's just one of those things where you're like, man, you know, Jesus, you're calling me to do something that's impossible almost, right? I mean, it's, it's just one of those things we read and we're like, oh, I wish Jesus hadn't said that. And then the week after that, we looked at Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. We read that and we're like, what are you talking about, Jesus? And obviously what he's doing there is he's speaking in hyperbole. And what he's saying is, he's saying, I have to be first, right? You have to love me more than anything else. And of course, who's the only one that can claim that type of love? It's God and Jesus again in this. Uh, give us, us a hint of his identity. Today, the passage we're going to read is another one. Actually, in this passage we're going to read, there are about three different verses that could have been things we wish Jesus hadn't said. But we're going to be focusing on this one from Mark chapter 10, where Jesus says, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. That ought to make us a little uncomfortable. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for these people. I thank you that um, you have drawn them into this place, that you've drawn them into your presence. And so, Father, I just ask that uh, your spirit would be here, that he would be the conductor of this orchestra of humanity, and, uh, and that what happens here today would be beautiful. I pray that you would introduce yourself um, to people for the first time. And, Father, for those um, who have been wandering away from you, I pray that you would woo them back to yourself. I pray that that would be true um, for me as well. I pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, let me get a quick show of hands here. How many of you in the room before have read the book, The Hobbit? Can you raise your hand if you've ever read The Hobbit by Tolkien? Okay. I'm, I've been reading these to my kids for the last 10 years or something anyway. And so it's funny, Bob gave me a hard time on Sunday, uh, the other day, because he was like, hey, another, another Tolkien illustration, really? Anyway, but the reality is I'm just reading this stuff to my kids. Anyway, and uh, so now how many have seen the movie, The Hobbit? Okay, so if you liked the book, give me a thumbs up, and if you didn't like it, give me a thumbs down, okay? Uh, How about the movie? If you liked the movie, give me a thumbs up. If not, thumbs down. Okay, I thought the movie was a total thumbs down, all three of them. Terrible. Anyway, regardless, some of you, I apologize for criticizing you publicly, which is what I just did, but anyway, so essentially you kind of, some of you in the room know the story. It's the story that Tolkien wrote for his grandchildren, the story called The Hobbit. It's called There and Back Again. And uh, the, the culmination of the story is that this little, little guy, um, Bilbo, is hired by these dwarves to help them recapture their treasure, which has been taken over by this evil dragon named Smog, right? And so throughout the story, what's interesting is what happens is you're, you're sort of uh, faced with the, the greed of the dwarves, their love of money, just how much they're sort of captivated by this alluring wealth. And at the end of the story, Frodo, who to this, I mean, sorry, Bilbo, to this point, who hasn't cared anything about money, 
makes his way into the, the heart of this mountain where the dragon smog is sitting on this huge pile of gold. And what's interesting is that Tolkien shows that all of a sudden, in the midst of being sort of faced with this mountain of gold uh, upon which seats is, is, uh, is laying this giant dragon smog, what's interesting is that Bilbo loses his fear of the dragon because he's so enamored by this wealth that's around him. I'm going to read a passage. Again, Tolkien calls Bilbo's reaction to this wealth, to this money. He calls it staggerment. So follow along with me. I'll just read this. He says this. He says, The glow of smog. There he lay, a vast red golden dragon, fast asleep. A thrumming came from his jaws and nostrils, and wisps of smoke. But his fires were low in slumber. Beneath him, under all his limbs and his huge coiled tail, and about him on all sides, stretching away across the unseen floors, lay countless piles of precious things. Gold, wrought and unwrought, gems and jewels, and silver red, stained in the ruddy light. Smog lay with wings folded like an immeasurable bat, turned partly on one side so that the hobbit could see his underparts, and his long pale belly, belly crusted with gems and fragments of gold from his long lying on his costly bed. Behind him, where the walls were nearest, could dimly be seen coats of mail, helms and axes, swords and spears hanging. And there in rows stood great jars and vessels filled with a wealth that could not be guessed. Now listen to Bilbo's reaction. To say that Bilbo's breath was taken away is no description at all. There are no words left to express his staggerment. Bilbo had heard tell and sing of dragon hordes before, but the splendor, the lust, the glory of such treasure had never yet come to him. His heart was filled and pierced with enchantment and with the desire of the dwarves, that is, of gold and wealth. And he gazed motionless, almost forgetting the frightful guardian at the gold beyond price and count, right? It's this great picture. And, and what you see there is that, that Bilbo standing in the presence of this giant dragon who could eat him in a heartbeat, but instead of feeling fear, his feelings of fear and awe that should be at the dragon are overtaken by his, his awe, his staggerment of all of this wealth. In other words, he begins to sort of feel the same love, that same uh, being enamored by the wealth that lies before him that the dwarves have been cursed with that has ruined their lives. The reason I use this illustration today is because most of us, like Bilbo, um, are filled with that same staggerment, right? We're filled with that, that, that same feeling of love, of wealth, and what it possibly could provide. Because it's not so much the money, um, it's not so much the wealth, it's, what's the, it's what the wealth and the money can do for us. It's, it's that the wealth can give us power to be somebody we're not right now. It's that the wealth, the allure of wealth, can give us safety and security if maybe you don't feel safe and secure. It's that maybe the wealth could give you pleasures that you up to this point in time have never had the chance to partake of before. And so it's not so much just the wealth itself, but it's, but it's everything that the wealth symbolizes or could give you. And the truth is we're Americans and we, we love wealth and we are enamored by it. We're staggered by it. Not only is wealth alluring for us, but the topic of wealth is especially applicable to us today because everybody in this room, almost everybody in this room, is probably wealthy, right, according to the world's definitions. Now, there's a, an article that I read recently called Admit It, You're Rich. Admit It, You're Rich by Megan McArdle. And she writes for The Atlantic and for The New York Times. Uh, this particular article was on the uh, Bloomberg. But here's what she says in her article, Admit It, You're Rich. She says this, The cutoff for the global 1% starts quite a bit lower than the parochial American version preferred by pundits. I'm on it, she says. And if your personal income is higher than 
$500, so are you. And here's uh, what she calls you. She says, the global elite to which you and I belong enjoys fantastic wealth compared to the rest of the world. We have more food, clothes, comfortable housing, electronic gadgets, healthcare, travel, and leisure than almost every other living person, not to mention, every, not to mention virtually every human being who's ever lived. Does that make sense? I mean, you've got more than any human being has ever lived. You're in the global elite, that 1%. We are also mostly privileged to live in societies that offer quite a lot in the way of public amenities, from well-policed streets and clean water to museums and libraries to public officials who do their jobs without requiring a hefty bribe. And I haven't even mentioned the social safety nets that our government provides. In other words, she says, come on, just admit it. If we live in America, we're rich, you're wealthy. You, you know some of these other statistics. You've probably heard these. That if you made more than $1,500 last year, so for example, somebody in this room who babysat a decent amount last year, if you earn more than $1,500, you by yourself, you're in the top 20% of the world's income earners. You're pretty wealthy. If you earned more than $25,000 last year, then you're in the top 10% of the world's earners, which means campus outreach workers, and young life people and youth pastors, right? You guys are all rich. You're loaded according to the world's standards. If you have any money saved, a hobby that requires some equipment or supplies and a variety of clothing in your closet, if you've got some sets of clothes, if you've got two cars in any condition, even a condition like my own 2002 Camry, in any condition, if you live in your own home, you're in the top 5% of the world's wealthy. Again, what Megan McArdle says here, she says, go ahead, admit it, you are rich. Admit it, you're rich, right? You just are. You don't always feel rich because you're not comparing yourself to the person that lives in Uganda. You're not comparing yourself to the person who lives in India. You're comparing yourself to your roommate, right? Or you're comparing yourself to uh, your wife's family, whatever the case may be. You're comparing yourself to other rich people. So you may not feel rich, but you are. Here's the problem. The problem is most of us in this room, not all of us, but most of us in this room love wealth or at least what wealth can provide. And the other problem, and maybe the more acute problem, is that all of us in the room this morning are members of this global elite. And according to Jesus, our wealth, right, our wealth is is a barrier. It's an obstacle to entering into a relationship with him. Our wealth is a barrier to inheriting what he calls eternal life. Our wealth, our riches are a barrier to what some of you might call being saved or salvation. Listen to what Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 25. There's a man that runs up to him who's a wealthy young man. And this wealthy young man runs up to Jesus and Jesus goes right to the heart, to right to the heart of this man's relationship or lack of relationship with God and ignorance about his own relationship with his wealth. Listen again as Jesus begins speaking here in verse 17. It says, as Jesus started on his way, by the way, Mark's a really short book. The whole goal of Mark is to take you to the cross. Jesus here in Mark chapter 10 is headed to Jerusalem where he's getting ready to die on the cross. This young man runs up to him, says that he fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he, that is the young man, declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, 
Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. You know, if you feel a little bit uncomfortable right now, that's probably a good thing. And what that means is you need to pay attention a little more closely to what Jesus has to say here. Before we get into this idea of riches, though, let me, let me jump in and see what else we see in this passage. The first thing we see in this passage, verses 17 and 18, show that there's this young man, he's passionate and he's sincere, but he's absolutely wrong about who Jesus is, or he's wrong about Jesus' identity. Listen to these verses. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. This man is wrong about Jesus, who Jesus is. He's wrong about Jesus' identity. He's mistaken. It's a case of mistaken identity, right? He, he thinks he's a good teacher. So let me pause here and say one second. Let me tell you a story. When I was a freshman in high school, Travelers Rest High School, played soccer on the soccer team, um, the coolest guy in school was a guy named Jamie Bruce. And Jamie Bruce had a cool car. He had great clothing, right? He came from the richest neighborhood in our area. And uh, not only did he have all those things, but he had probably the coolest girl in school as, as his girlfriend. Her name was Leslie Porter. And so Leslie Porter was this girl who also was very wealthy, also was very attractive, also was very popular. And I remember she drove a white Mercedes convertible, right? Just imagine, this is like 1986 or something. Anyway, and uh, so they were just the coolest couple in school, the most popular couple in school. And uh, so interestingly enough, Jamie and I looked kind of similar. You know, we both had the same color hair, both about the same stature. And I remember one time standing in line in the lunchroom, and I had my, you know, sort of was in the line, and as I stood there, somebody walked up to me and patted me on the tush, right? Which happened a lot. It, just, it was usually my mom that did it. And so if my first thought was like, oh, it's one of my buddies. I turned around. It's Leslie Porter, right? The most popular girl in school, the most attractive girl in school who dri- drove a white Mercedes convertible. And I turned around. And as soon as I turned around, she just put her hand over her mouth because it was obvious that she had mistaken me for Jamie, right? And so, of course, I just loved that. That was just the, made my day, obviously. Anyway, <laughs> she was probably horrified. But I said, don't worry about, again, people, that happens all the time. Anyway, um, <laughs> the point is, is that she thought I was somebody I wasn't, right? Now, here's, G, here's this man. This man runs up to Jesus, and this man obviously thinks Jesus is somebody that he's not, right? So, so first and foremost, what we see is that this guy this young man runs up to Jesus, right? It's not socially acceptable if you're a man in the ancient Near East to run, but this guy is excited, right? And so there's a sense in which we could maybe applaud him for his attitude. So maybe he's got the right attitude, but the wrong idea about Jesus, but he runs up to Jesus. That's socially inappropriate to begin with, and he's a wealthy guy. And then not only that, but he runs up to Jesus, and it says that he falls on his knees before Jesus, right? They're on the way to Jerusalem. There's probably people everywhere. And this guy, again, in, this, in some respects, has a great attitude. He runs up to Jesus. He falls on his knees. He's not embarrassed to sort of turn to Jesus. He's passionate. He's sincere. The problem is he's wrong about who Jesus is, right? 
So listen to how this rich young ruler, this young man addresses Jesus. He says, good teacher, right? The word is agathe didaskale, good teacher, right? And so he comes to Jesus assuming that Jesus is a, a rabbi or maybe a good teacher, but really nothing more. And listen to how Jesus responds. Jesus responds by saying this, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. Jesus doesn't say, don't call me good. I'm just a man. Instead, Jesus asks the man a probing question like he always does, trying to get to the heart of the matter. And he says, again, tells the man, he says, no one's good, but God alone. And it's a hint, I think, that Jesus is giving here. And he's saying, you know, you're actually more right than you think. I am good. In fact, uh, I am God, but the young man doesn't see this. He doesn't understand it. He just thinks that Jesus is a good man. He thinks he's a good teacher. He thinks he's a, a good rabbi, and he misses the fact that he's standing before the author of reality, that he's standing before the God who has entered into humanity in the form and the shape and the being of a human. Now, here's where we need to pause here for a second. Let me ask you this. How do you come to Jesus? How do you come to Jesus? Right? Do you come to Jesus assuming that he's a social activist? Do you come to Jesus assuming he was a good man? Maybe you come to Jesus and you really believe all the stuff that Sunday school taught you over the years and the Westminster Confession and all these great you know, preachers and writers you've heard. Maybe you really believe that Jesus is God. Maybe you believe that, but do you come to him as if he is God? Do you give him the right to speak into your life? Do you give Jesus the right to be the primary authority over what you believe to be true and how you live more so than popular psychology, more so than the Republicans or the Democrats, more so than your parents even? Do you come to Jesus allowing him to be who he claimed to be, which is God in the flesh? Listen to what C.S. Lewis has to say about this divinity of Christ. He says this, one part of the claim tends to slip past us unnoticed because we've heard it so often that we no longer see what it amounts to. I mean the claim to forgive sins, any sins. Now, unless the speaker is God, this is really so preposterous as to be comic. We can all understand how a man forgives offenses against himself. You tread on my toes and I forgive you. You steal my money and I forgive you. But what should we make of a man himself unrobbed and untrodden on who announced that he forgave you for treading on other men's toes and stealing other men's money? Asinine fatuity is the kindest description that we should give this type of conduct. Yet this is what Jesus did. He told people that their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult the other people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. He unhesitatingly behaved as if he was the party chiefly concerned, the person chiefly offended in all offenses. This makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. In the mouth of any speaker who is not God, these words would imply that I can, what I can only regard as a silliness. And any speaker who's not God, these words would imply, or what I can only regard as a silliness, and conceited unrivaled by any other character in history. Yet, and this is the strange, significant thing, even his enemies, when they read the Gospels, do not usually get the impression of silliness and conceit. Still less do unprejudiced readers. Christ says that he is humble and meek, and we believe him. Not noticing that if we were, he were merely a man, humility and meekness are the very last characteristics we would attribute to some of his sayings. In other words, what C.S. Lewis, this you know, brilliant man with a photographic memory, what he's saying here is that Jesus claimed to be God. 
And so when we come to Jesus, we need to understand that when he's speaking about wealth and eyes of needles and camels, that he's not speaking just as a social activist. He's not, he's not MLK, right? He's not the original Martin Luther, right? He is God. How do you come to Jesus? The second thing that we see in this passage is that not only is this man wrong about Jesus and Jesus' identity, he's also wrong about salvation or the nature of what it means to be saved. Verse 17 says this, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Did you catch that? What must I do to inherit eternal life? He's wrong about the nature of salvation. The truth about salvation is totally and completely counterintuitive to him. It's exactly opposite of what he thinks it is. He thinks that salvation is by works, but he's going to find out that it's about something very, very different, right? He's mistaken, and it's counterintuitive. The nature of salvation is different than he thinks it is. So I've mentioned some of you before that I lifeguarded for about eight years all through high school and college. And uh, one of the things that's counterintuitive about lifeguarding is when you're lifeguarding, if there's somebody, say, in the deep end, and they're starting to struggle and maybe starting to drown, your natural inclination is to want to jump in and try to save that person. That's the natural inclination. But what they teach you from day one of lifeguard training to the very end of lifeguard training is that if you do that, when you jump into the water, that person who's drowning, who's very fearful at the moment, is going to latch onto you, and chances are they're going to drown you too if you let them hold onto you. In fact, when I was a kid living in Pensacola, Florida, we were at the beach one day. My father had been a lifeguard too. And uh, there were three kids um, that drowned in the water there off of the beach. And what had happened was two little girls were struggling to swim where they couldn't touch. And their big brother went out there to try to save them. And the little girls latched onto him and all three drowned. That's what happens. Now, what's counterintuitive as a lifeguard is, is if you do have to go in to try to save that person, then you know that person is going to try to grab onto you, Right? And the only way to get away from them isn't to try to push them away from you. It's not try to, to try to push yourself up. Rather, the counterintuitive way to save yourself is to actually push yourself down, right? Does that make sense? Because a drowning person, the last place they want to go is down. And so that's the way you actually save yourself is by going down. What Jesus is doing here to this man is he's showing him that his idea of salvation is wrong and that true salvation is actually counterintuitive. Again, this man is passionate, Right? This young man is sincere. You could look at it and say he really wants to be saved, right? The problem is he's wrong about Jesus and he's wrong about this idea of salvation. He comes up to Jesus and he says, what must I do, right? What what performance can I offer you? How can I be good enough? You know, what, what, what thing or hoop can I jump through in order to be saved, right? In other words, um, it's, I know that there's something I've got to do for, to be accepted by God. But the problem is that that's our default mode. It's all of our default mode to come to God with this idea of offering him our performance record, and all of us are sorely mistaken, right? Here's what Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 23 say. What they essentially say is, you can't be good enough, okay? But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Again, this is the righteousness that this young man is looking for, enough righteousness to be accepted by God. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, part of what Paul is communicating here is what we learn throughout the pages of Scripture is there's nothing that we can do to be saved. We can't 
be good enough because all of us have fallen short. Paul in Ephesians goes on to talk about the nature of salvation in some other ways. He says this, he says, for it is by grace you've been saved, right? Grace is a gift. It's an unmerited favor that is given to you. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So here's this young man who comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do? It's the default mode of all of us. We all wanna come to God and say, what must we do? How much obedience is enough? How much goodness is enough? How much badness is too much, right? And, uh, and that's always the way that religion works. Whether it's, whether it's um, a religion that, that believes in the God that we believe in, or whether it's Buddhism, or whether it's Hinduism, whatever it is, the way that religion always works is, if I obey, then I'll be accepted. If I do enough good things, then you'll take me in, right? If I'm a good enough person, then I inherit eternal life. That's, that's the way religion always operates. The problem is religion isn't Christianity, right? Jesus didn't come to sort of draw people into religion. He came to call people to himself. Jesus and Christianity is always exactly the opposite. Christianity is always, you're accepted. Therefore, now you have the freedom to obey, Right? So if religion is, I obey, therefore I'm accepted, Christianity is, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Does that make sense? The problem is, again, we're all trapped in that former mindset. And what happens is if you live in that mindset of believing that if I obey enough, then God will accept me, it always leads to pride. It always leads to judging other people. It always leads to feeling superiority to people who are not as good as you. And chances all are, it will also lead to self-loathing because eventually it'll come to a point where you don't think you've ever done enough. That's what happened to Martin Luther. Now, the latter, this idea of believing that you're accepted, therefore you're set free to obey purely, that creates someone who's filled with grace, someone who's filled with mercy, and someone who is more than happy to always let God be the hero. Does that make sense? How are you coming to Jesus? Who do you believe he is? How are you coming to him, and what questions are you asking him about salvation? What do you believe about the nature of being made right with God about this idea of eternal life. Last thing we see in this passage is that not only was this young man wrong about Jesus, not only was he wrong about salvation, but he was also wrong and mistaken about righteousness. Listen to verses 18 through 22. Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother, to which the young man responds, teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Right, so we've seen all this about the rich young ruler. Maybe sincere, you know, at least exuberant, right? But wrong about who Jesus is, wrong about salvation. The rich young ruler calls Jesus good and Jesus responds by saying no one is good except God alone. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. He doesn't really even give the man a a chance to respond. Jesus instead presses on or presses in by answering his question by essentially saying, okay, then keep all the commandments, right? And he lists these commandments to which the rich young ruler responds, all these I've kept since I was a boy. In other words, he says, I know you just said that only God is good, but I'm telling you, me too. 
I'm I'm good too, right? I've kept all of these commandments. I've done all that. In fact, I've done it all since I was a boy, right? In other words, what's happening here is this poor young guy is, uh, is arrogant beyond belief, but he doesn't even know it, right? Jesus says, only God is good. And this young man goes, me too. I've done all this already. It doesn't end there though, because Jesus, again, is seeking to go deeper with this young man. Jesus realizes this, this rich young ruler has this blind spot around his own righteousness or lack thereof. And so Jesus kindly and lovingly pushes in by saying, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. What is Jesus doing here? He's really starting with the first commandment. He listed the commandments, if you guys remember. He's starting with the first commandment, thou shall have no other gods before me in order to show this man that not only has he not kept all of the commandments perfectly, but he can't even keep the first commandment. Does that make sense? Because what he shows this man is that this man, this young man, loves something more than he loves God, right? He finds his identity in his wealth more than he finds his identity in God. He finds his security in his wealth more than he finds his security in God. He loves his wealth more than he loves God. He's not keeping the commandments perfectly. In fact, he's not even keeping the first commandment perfectly. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Remember, again, what this is really called when you find your security or your identity or your safety or your ultimate meaning. When you find all of those things in something that God has created, a person or a job or in some principle, that that's called an idol. That's what scripture calls an idol. And an idol is anything we look to in order to have security or identity or safety other than God or more than God. Here's what Tim Keller says in his book, Counterfeit Gods. It says this, Jesus uses all the basic metaphors for idolatry and applies them to greed and money, right? Just what Jesus is doing right here with this rich young ruler. According to the Bible, idolaters do three things with their idols. They love them, they trust them, they obey them. Lovers of money are those who find themselves daydreaming and fantasizing about new ways to make money, new possessions to buy, and looking with jealousy on those who have more money than they do. Now, I'll be honest, I'm not that much of a money guy, but I have done that countless times in my life, right? He goes on to say, trusters of money feel they have control of their lives and are safe and secure because of their money, because of their 401k, because of their parents' money, because of their investments. Idolatry also makes us servants of money. Just as we serve earthly kings and magistrates, so we sell our souls to our idols because we look to them for our significance, love, and security, trust, We have to have them. And therefore, we're driven to serve and essentially obey them. When Jesus says that we serve money, he uses a word that means the solemn covenantal service rendered to a king. If you live for money, you are a slave, right? Let me say that one more time. If you live for money, then you're a slave. It will enslave you. You'll become addicted. If, however, God becomes the center of your life, that dethrones and demotes money. If your identity and security is in God, It can't control you through worry and desire. It's one or the other. You either serve God or you become open to slavery to mammon, which is riches or wealth in Aramaic or in Greek. So is Jesus telling us today that if we're Christians and if we're followers of Jesus, then we have to give away all of our possessions? Is that what Jesus is telling us? Again, this is a hard saying of Jesus. It's one of those things where like, ooh, I wish you hadn't said that, Jesus. Is that what he's saying here? The answer is no. He's not saying that. 
so you can kind of wipe your brow for a minute and go, whew, thank goodness, I can still be a Christian. No, but wealth was this young man's idol, right? And Jesus is saying, if you, if you want to follow me, then I've got to be first. I've got to be number one. Uh, for others of you, it might not be wealth, but that thing that stands between you and God, that thing you love more than God, it might be your family, right? We talked about that a couple weeks ago. It could be your job, right? That could be the thing that's the most important to you. It might be the thing that gives you identity and security and peace and comfort and pleasure more so than God. It, it might be your physical beauty, right? And so whatever that idol is, you need to know it will enslave you. It will demand obedience. It will demand service. You'll be addicted. It'll turn you into a monster, right? It'll kill you and it'll kill the people that you love if you allow yourself to be addicted and enslaved by something other than or someone other than the God of the universe, right? We are to have no other gods before him. That's not just for him, it's for us. So this young man, he's wrong about Jesus. He's wrong about salvation. He's wrong about his own righteousness. Now, let me end by saying two things here. Um, One of the verses that I read at the very beginning, but I haven't read since then, was about Jesus' heart toward this young man, this, this idolater, this guy who maybe had a good attitude but had the wrong answers. In verse 21, listen to Jesus' heart in regard to this man. It says this. It says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Many of you in this room, all of you in this room today, myself included, need to hear those words, that Jesus looks at you and loves you. We don't even need to get into theological debate. We can do that at lunch. We can do that some other time. But Jesus looked at this man and he loved him, right? Jesus looks at you and loves you. How many of you need to hear that today? This guy was arrogant, right? He was kind of probably a nice guy, but a little bit of a buffoon. He may have been narcissistic. We don't know. But Jesus still looked at him and loved him, right? How many of you in this room today need to know that no matter what you have done, no matter how many times you have done it, no matter how horrible you think it is, no matter if you knew better anyway, you need to know that Jesus looks at you and loves you. Does that make sense? Now let me go and talk about one other thing. One other thing is the the way that Jesus then addresses the disciples later about this young man. Uh, So we're going to look in a different section of verses. We're going to look at verses 23 through 27. And what we see here is that God is not only willing, but he's able. God is not only willing, but he's able to save you. Verse 23 says this, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? The reason they asked this question is because Jews fundamentally believed that riches were a sign of God's favor, right? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. In other words, it's impossible to be saved, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Now, as I studied through this passage a little bit, I thought about this analogy of, you know, the eye of a needle. And, and what I thought was, I thought, well, okay, what would it take for a camel to go through the eye of a needle? And one of the things it would take for a camel to go through the eye of a needle is the camel would have to be made really, really small, right? This is, bear with me. I know this sounds ridiculous. But a camel would have to be made teeny, right? Have to be made small. What is Jesus doing with this man? What Jesus is doing with this man is he's, he's helping him on his road to humility. He, he's helping him on his road to confessing his brokenness. He's helping him on this road 
to becoming small, right? To acknowledging his brokenness, to acknowledging that he doesn't have what it takes. And that's, that's just the gospel. It's also called repentance. It, it's, it's called confession. It's where we stand in the presence of God. And all of a sudden, in light of his magnitude and glory, we recognize that we are tiny. And in order for us to be saved, we have to become small to enter into the kingdom of heaven. The other way a camel can go through the eye of a needle is if the eye of the needle is made really, really huge, so much so that a camel can get through. Does that make sense? And again, bear with me, right? I realize this is a ridiculous analogy. But what did Jesus do when he died upon the cross? What did Jesus do when he lived the perfect life? What did, what did Jesus do when he, as the author of all reality, the son of God, what did he do when he allowed himself to be the Passover lamb, when he allowed himself to be the eternal sacrifice? What Jesus did is he made the eye of the needle as big as it ever needed to be. This morning, we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. And what the Lord's Supper communicates over and over and over again is that Jesus did it all, right? I don't care how bad your sin was, right? You, you haven't sinned enough. You haven't sinned big enough. It doesn't matter if you knew better. None of those things matter because the eye of the needle is immense. The eye of the needle is so big that you could enter into the kingdom of heaven because the sacrifice of Jesus, the Son of God, is more than enough not only to cover over your sins, individual, past, present, and future, but Jesus' sacrifice was more than enough to cover over all of the sins, past, present, and future, of all of those throughout all of history who have ever trusted or whoever will trust in him. All that's required for you is to humble yourself and to admit that and to quit trusting in your own righteousness and trust in Jesus' righteousness on behalf, your behalf. It's called repentance and faith. Now, again, this morning, we're celebrating the Lord's Supper where all of this is communicated. And very clearly, clearly let me, uh, or quickly, let me sort of tell you what's going on here. Um, here in front of me is a table with bread and wine. Uh, by this exit door to the right, there's more bread, there's more wine. The rest of the tables around the room are bread and grape juice. But what this meal represents is the gospel, This meal represents the blood of Christ shed for you. This meal represents the body of Christ broken for you. This meal of Christ looks back at the Passover where the children of Israel were rescued, right? But it also looks back at the cross where Jesus did all that was required to be able to bring you into the kingdom of heaven. And so this morning, I want to invite you to take the Lord's Supper, right? But the only people that are allowed to take this Lord's Supper today are the people who have become small, right, who have quit trusting in their own righteousness and who trust alone in the righteousness of the Son of God on their behalf. Let me read the words of institution taken from 1 Corinthians 11, then I'll pray, and I'll ask you to simply sit and dwell upon the fact that Jesus has indeed done everything required for you. Verse 23 begins by saying this, Paul speaking, he says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let me take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I pray that... um, this meal, this Lord's Supper, this, um, this communion that we are preparing to take, Father, I pray that this would be a, a visceral reminder that would shock us into remembrance that, um, 
that you've done it all. The, the eye of the needle indeed is, is, is amazingly large enough for us to enter in because you made it so. What was impossible with us is possible with you and you've done it, um, not only for your own glory and for the glory of your son Jesus, but for our good. So Father, I pray that this morning that we would take this bread and that we would take this wine and that we would truly believe the truth of the gospel, that we are forgiven, that we're loved, that we are now beautiful and that we are righteous in your sight, not because of our goodness, but because of the goodness of your son Jesus. So it's in his name that we pray, amen. Father, we thank you that we can stand here this morning knowing that your son Jesus paid it all, whether we, whether we think so or not, whether we believe it in our heart or not. Father, allow us to confess it this morning that, that your son Jesus paid it all, that he did everything that was required for us to enter in. Only let us trust in him. Father, I pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Receive now the benediction. Again, God told Aaron to, to tell the people of Israel this on his behalf. He said this, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. Amen.